Picture a long, flat country road that seems to go on forever in the middle of America. The only sounds you hear are the wind and the whirring wheels of a group of cyclists on an epic 4,000-mile journey across the country. It's for a really good cause. Everyone in this group is great, really friendly, except for there's one guy that you're really not that sure of. And that's because you believe his ancestors may have played a part in the exile of your great-grandfather and the death of more than a million of his countrymen. And that's what's happening on Relate this week. I'm Tamara Stanners, and this is Relate by Zendesk. Today, well... If you've listened to the podcast, you know we talk about relationships, and you also know that relationships can be complicated. Yeah, and this one is, like, historically complicated. This is producer Andy Shepard. So for this one, we have to go way back to a place called Eastern Anatolia, which is today part of Turkey, and to this hugely traumatic event that started in 1915. Uh, the death of one and a half million Armenians. The Armenian genocide. Yes. Um, But, you know, unlike the genocides in Rwanda or in Germany during World War II, where, you know, there's general consensus around what happened, um, the events leading to the Armenian genocide are contentious, particularly in the Turkish community. In fact, today, Turkey, which was part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, continues to deny any role in planning this atrocity, despite the fact that there's you know, loads of documentation that shows that the state was involved in this act. So explain what this has to do with our cyclists on this trip across the United States. Well, first, let me introduce you to Rafi. I... I'm born in Baltimore. He's a proud Armenian-American. Or an American-Armenian. I don't I don't care which comes first. My parents are both born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon. And their parents came from eastern Anatolia, which is eastern Turkey today. So Rafi is one of the riders on this bike trip across the U.S. And a lot of what Rafi knows about his family comes from writings and photos that his great-grandfather left behind. And these include information on, you know, what villages they originally came from uh, in what used to be the uh, Ottoman Empire, and today it's Turkey. So on my mom's side, my great-grandparents are from uh, a village called Zara, not the clothing company, um, actual town, in north-central Anatolia. So the Armenians were a religious minority in the region, right? Yeah, and really it's one of those kind of repeating uh, stories in history where some minority group does well in terms of education or wealth and, and, you know, they become a scapegoat for everything that's wrong in a society, in this case in the Ottoman Empire. And it all comes to a head around 1915 during World War I. During this time, Armenian men were targeted. Like They went village to village and targeted these men. Many of these men were killed, and uh, many of them were subjected to forced labor. And then what they did, and this is horrible, they'd take the women and children and and the elderly and and lead them on these uh, terrible, basically, death marches into the Syrian desert. 
now, there was this one teenage boy, and he had managed to escape one of these marches, and he eventually made his way to Syria, to a refugee camp there. Refugees escaping to Syria instead of from Syria. Wow, it sounds so strange today, doesn't it? Yeah, no kidding. So this boy, he would be in that camp for 10 years. In fact, he started a family in the camp before he would finally get a job in Beirut working as a road contractor or paving roads. That teenage boy was Rafi's great-grandfather. Rafi's parents both grew up in Lebanon, and that's where they met. And the stories of this genocide uh, left this persistent fear in them. They had fear that this could happen again. In a sense, it was a transmission of the trauma from the Armenian genocide with my grandparents and great-grandparents. And then for my own parents to hear those stories, seeing their home... Rafi's father eventually managed to find a job in the U.S., and so his parents picked up and started their lives all over again one more time. After hearing all of this, it's really hard to imagine that someone could say, no, this genocide, it didn't happen the way you're saying it did. Your family didn't suffer the way you think they did. I know, but here's the thing. So... (laughs) The the way that I was raised, I guess the best way to frame it would be what I would call Turkish denial. So this is Ersin. Ersin went to college at the same time, same school as Rafi. And Ersin is Turkish-American. And his understanding of what happened to the Armenians, well, it was very different from what Rafi's family knew. And so what I learned growing up was that it was just this completely unfortunate accident just an accident. Yeah. I mean, Erson says that his parents and a lot of Turks that he knew growing up taught him that there was this, you know, legitimate military measure that was taken. They were deporting Armenians en masse from their homes because they were supposedly collaborating with Russian forces and doing all sorts of conspiratorial things against the government. And in the process of this whole deportation, a bunch of unexpected, unpreventable events happened that wiped out the Armenians while they were trekking to Syria you know, raids by highwaymen and also the outbreak of influenza and, you know, just very poor uh, logistical planning. That's what I learned. The genocide myth, as it was put to me, is like this glue, this binding force, and it causes a huge amount of resentment and hatred uh, among Armenians of Turks. And so I, I better watch out and I, shouldn't, I should steer totally clear from that uh, or else I might be the target of that hatred. I had been told by more hardline Armenians that Turks are bad, they deny the genocide, and we kept our distance. So at college, Rafi and Ersin, they knew that they were both there. They'd bumped into each other before. They were both involved in the theater scene. And, you know, they'd sometimes be in on the same improv sketch routines even. But they always ended up keeping, a, I don't know, a safe distance. You know, you do your thing, I'll do mine, that kind of deal. I just remember something like him realizing that I was Turkish, which terrified me because I knew that he was Armenian. And I didn't really have any Armenian friends at that point. I think he said something like, oh, Hatsin, you're Turkish. I was like... Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, 
you know I'm Armenian, right? And I was like, oh, sh where is this going to go? <laughs> when I met Ersin, I learned he was Turkish. I felt a level of discomfort because of the cultural baggage. But we hadn't had any sort of concrete discussion about history or anything like that. So eventually, at some point, it came up and, you know, we quickly established that at that point, he did not believe that there was an Armenian genocide. But then the 4K happened. The 4K is this 4,000 mile uh, bike trek across the United States. Sounds amazing. And, yeah. And it turns out they didn't know it, but both Rafi and Erson had applied to be part of the cycling team that would bike across the United States. So it was called the 4K for Cancer and it had this mission, you know, to sp spread awareness, raise funds in the fight against cancer. Okay, on a 4,000 mile bike ride across the United States, which is unbelievable, you probably have to work with your teammates. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a fairly sizable group. Uh -huh. um, but what happened, Rafi and Erson, they joined their teammates uh, in the early morning hours, just a couple of days after the end of the school year. And they crammed their duffel bags into the back of the team's van and they tuned their bikes and they went down to the harbor and dipped their tires uh, into the waters of the harbor and then headed west. But, you know, even with all, because, you know, there's team building stuff that happens at the beginning, but even with all these symbolic moments of, of togetherness, Rafi and Erson couldn't yet shake the fact that they had to share the road. And we kept our distance. You know, I, I was one of, I think, three freshmen on that trip, and everybody else was uh, either a sophomore or an upperclassman. And so I felt very isolated. And it wasn't until Rafi started kind of listening in on Erson's phone calls that things started to, you know, shift gears. I overheard his conversation with his parents on the phone, and I would hear him say things that sounded familiar. I hadn't quite figured out yet how it all worked, but our dialect of Armenian has a lot of Turkish in it. So he would hear me say things that were Turkish. So Rafi and Erson had both grown up with immigrant parents in the U.S., so that had to be something to bond over. Yeah. You have to marry a Turkish girl or an Armenian girl, and you have to, you know, just all the, the social norms that we sort of disagreed with or questioned, we found a lot of common ground. You know, to me, it sounds like these guys could be friends, maybe. Rafi was somebody who, like, he just didn't care about sort of social pretensions, and he was really just very creative and always kind of being silly and artistic. And that's a vibe that I really appreciate in people. Erson says that this creative vibe got them working together on music. So they they pull out Rafi's MacBook at water stops or in the evening when they were done riding for the day, and they'd use, you know, GarageBand to arrange and mix these really silly songs, and they'd play them for the rest of the team. Fine. And, you know, we would make these dumb songs about the trip, and then it kind of became a well-known duo. So these two young men, after spending really their entire lives being told to be afraid of each other, are connecting, like Rafi had been told to stay away from the Turks and Erson had been told to watch out for those Armenians. These two guys are biking side by side every day and now they're making music together. Yeah, they really connected. Love it. 
biking across the country together to fight cancer. Having that common purpose and then learning and uncovering our common background was a great experience of transcending um, difference. By the end of the bike trip, we were like brothers. We were like best friends. But when you're raised to believe a certain truth, you know, especially one that you know turns out to be false, it's hard to move forward in a relationship, right, without looking back at who or what you might be leaving behind. I mean, even though Erson came to recognize the genocide for what it was, and he knew that the denial that he grew up with wasn't the narrative he believed in, uh, he was still left knowing that his parents and a lot of other Turks weren't there with him, at least not yet. You know, from the other perspective, from the Turkish perspective, there's so much insistence on like, well, we didn't kill you on purpose. And it's like, okay, but you accept that you accept that your actions were played a role or that generally our ancestors were somehow involved in this tragic event, right? Then, I mean, at some point, when do we recognize that an absurd amount of blood has been spilled and that we are all neighbors and we're all, you know, part of the same community? When do we just acknowledge the enormous amount of pain in the room? So have they, you know, sat down and, and actually talked through all of this together? Well, they have talked about it, and you know, quite carefully, and you know, lots of sensitivity. They talked about the genocide, and 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 actually, Erson spent lots and lots of hours on his own, pouring through the literature on the subject and f- trying to figure out new perspectives that are different from what he grew up being taught. And the nice thing is, Rafi says he doesn't try to push him on it. You know, he, he it's that Erson has figured out a lot of this on his own. Like, I don't try to push it on him. It's not my agenda to try to go and convince him of X, Y, or Z. But my interest is, you know, is first and foremost with him as a person. You know, I'm just there to support him on his journey. And, you know, likewise. It's been 10 years since they met on the 4K uh, cycling trip. And Erson and Rafi both live in California now. And they stay in close touch. They hang out. They talk about things that most friends do, you know, music or what books they're reading. They'll, they'll joke around with each other, pull out an old story or two from the time that they biked all the way across the U.S. Uh, but every now and then, Erson will think about where he started out and what it took to get to where he is now. Sometimes I wonder whether it would be possible for me to be close friends with Rafi if I never accepted the Armenian genocide. In the neighborhood that I'm next to, there's a big mural and it says, you're entitled to your own truth. And then it says, so long as your truth does not encourage my destruction or the enslavement of my will. And, you know, something, when there's a great historical tragedy, a tragic event like this, I wonder, Is it really possible to move on without justice and without that wrong being redressed? You know, it's very nice that Rafi and I make silly songs together and that we we can we can do all that. But sometimes I wonder whether that is um, whether any of that would be possible unless 
he knew that I cared. This story was brought to us and co-produced by Jackie Sophia. Thanks, Jackie. Now that story just goes to show that the simple act of starting a conversation with someone from a different background than you is a great way to bridge differences and to gain perspective. And it turns out that this approach is good for business too. There's an article on the Relate online magazine called How Diversity Improves Work Culture and the Bottom Line. It's all about how your business can benefit from different perspectives and different worldviews. And you can find that at relate.zendesk.com. That's it for Relate this time around. In two weeks, an episode we're calling Best Customer Ever. It's the story of a man who since 2012 has visited Disneyland every single day. That's well over 2,000 times. We spent an afternoon in the park with him to try to figure out what keeps this guy coming back for more. So subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you listen, and we'll serve up that episode and a bunch of other great stories that we've got in the works. In the meantime, for more articles on connecting to your customers in deeper ways, visit relate.zendesk.com. And if you want to explore technology built to improve your customer interactions, head over to zendesk.com for a free trial. I'm Tamara Stanners. Talk to you soon. Bye.